You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Hello, dear listener, Mel Butcher here, and I want to thank you for joining me in the Career That Soars community for another episode of Lead to Soar. Today, what we have for you is an interview by Susan Colantuno with guest Anne Mulcahy. A quick heads up, the audio quality is a bit low on this one because both women were on the move when it was recorded, but the perspectives and advice from Anne more than makes up for it, so stick with it. All right, so Anne Mulcahy is a former CEO of Xerox, and she's one of the women that Susan profiled in her book, No Ceiling, No Walls. So I'd like to read an excerpt from that to you now. If you have a hard copy of the book, this begins on page 86. In 2000, Xerox was on the verge of bankruptcy. Its revenues were declining, its sales force unraveling, and its new product pipelines depleted. The company had $18 billion in debt, and all lines of credit were exhausted. The share price was in freefall. Customers were dissatisfied and defecting. Employee morale was low and turnover high. It had just one week's cash on hand, and key advisors were recommending that the company consider bankruptcy. To make matters worse, the chief financial officer was preoccupied with an SEC investigation into the company's revenue recognition practices. In the midst of this chaos, Anne was preparing for a business trip to Japan. Chairman Paul Allaire came to her office and told her he planned to recommend that the Xerox board terminate its then-CEO and promote her to president and eventually CEO. In her new position, she met personally with the top 100 executives to ask them if they would stay with the company despite the challenges ahead. 98 committed to stay. The company sold $2.5 billion of non-core assets, exited the inkjet business, and focused on business excellence. In spite of the pressures and endless rounds of meetings at headquarters, Anne rode with salespeople to get into customers' offices. She learned that the customers wanted Xerox to help them cut costs. In other words, they wanted business solutions, not just hardware. They wanted low-cost solutions, which meant they might buy from a Xerox competitor, and they wanted software and hardware that would help with document-intensive jobs like customized bank statements. To respond, Xerox launched its Global Services Group in 2002. This required a radical redesign of the sales force work. Skipping ahead. In addition to radical change of the sales process, Xerox turned a critical eye on its processes for inventory management. Over time, inventory costs were drastically reduced and inventory turns increased. Xerox also tightened its process for collecting receivables, AR days. Overall, the organization was able to eliminate $2 billion in costs within two years. Anne's strategy for Xerox staved off bankruptcy by cutting billions in operating expenses without cutting field sales or R&D. Despite recommendations from various consultants that cutting investment in R&D would generate immediate cash and profit— Xerox continued R&D and engineering investment at the same rate as before the crash. 
by launching 100 new products in just the last few years with the new color and digital technology, Xerox restored profit growth and added revenue streams, though revenue growth has been elusive. That's just a bit of context for today's guest. So without further ado, we bring you Anne Mulcahy and Susan Colantuno on the Lead to Soar podcast. I might feel a little bit like interviewing you like you did when you went and met with Warren Buffett. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. I am such a fan. Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, man. I was walking this morning thinking, you know, Jim Collins nailed it when he identified you as a level five leader. Well, you know what? I feel very flattered by that. And, uh, (laughs) you know, when I think about uh, the time I spent with Jim. He had such a huge influence on me, I have to tell you, uh, you know, just, um, and it was at a time when I really was looking for someone who could really help kind of define leadership in a way that I felt comfortable with. And he he totally got it. But in any case, uh, uh, but I, anyways, I got your list of questions. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, however you want to do it, I'm good. Okay. Well, well, let's dive in. Okay. Pivotal experiences that enabled yeah. you to, yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, I, I sometimes think we do undervalue the, what I would call real content-based experiences mm-hmm. that give you the the platform, I think, for a lot of, you know, business understanding and business knowledge. So I the first thing I would say is is that I think everybody has to have a core area of expertise or content. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of the opposite of this jack of all trades thing. You, you know, you got to go deep on something. It's got to be part of your background. For me, that was kind of sales and customer mm-hmm. um, facing um, disciplines. And, you know, I think this idea of doing something for a long period of time and being an expert is is really important as you take on, you know, certainly lots of other different experiences. Um, the second thing I thought about, particularly on the strategic side of it, was the need for women to be a part of kind of strategic projects and task forces. Mm-hmm. They're a wonderful way without necessarily taking a job of getting, you know, a a broad perspective, really learning um, a lot from a set of colleagues, and oftentimes a lot of the change agendas in corporations begin with kind of the task force or project-oriented approach. So, Mm -hmm. you know, without necessarily holding a position in the strategy office, I think you can really get your arms around some strategic experiences by participating in those kinds of forums. Right. Did you have... Any of those? I did, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, we used to do um, kind of what we called future tech forums, which were kind of looking out five to ten years in terms Mm -hmm. of what would be the market influencers, what would be kind of, you know, technology interventions. I mean, a whole set of, you know, inputs, if you will, towards Mm -hmm. um, the internal strategy. And I participated on a couple of those task forces, which were very important, I think, in terms of, you know, my overall perspective about the future. Right, right. 
And then finally, I I look at, you know, and always encourage people to be willing to do kind of laterals, not this mm. kind of constant vertical pathing. So it sounds kind of contradictory I, because I do think you have to have an area of expertise and go deep. But then I think you have to be willing to do those kinds of horizontal experiences that broaden your knowledge. They may not be the next peg up the, the ladder, but for me, that were things like human resources, which, yes. you know, really wasn't a promotion. It was just a completely different set of experiences, you know, just a, a whole set of things that I did during the years after I did my first kind of 15 years in sales or sales, marketing, you know, managing operational P&Ls. Uh, you know, that's when I started to branch out and really do some of the things that weren't necessarily promotional type things, but really provided a great context for, as it turned out, being CEO. Right. I've read, and I, I mentioned in my book, that when you became CEO, you got coaching. I thought this was a great example of an inverted kind of mentor, yes. but you got coached on financial action yes. by someone within your finance department. I did, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I think one of the things that I learned is, is that, you know, no one, particularly at that level, no one comes into a job with, you know, all of the requisite knowledge and skills. And I think there's this um, tendency sometimes to not want to let p people know that, you know, you're not all that well-versed in certain areas, but the reality is they know. <laughs> and I think it's actually somewhat of a, a real sign of leadership when, you know, you kind of acknowledge that, you know, you have gaps and you look to, you know, subject matter experts to, to help you learn and, and develop a, a working competency in areas that, you know, you haven't worked in in the past. And, you know, for anybody, that's the case. Um, if you come from, you know, engineering and product development, you really need to understand kind of, you know, customer-facing processes and relationships, um, you know, whether it's finance or, you know, whatever. Um, I th IT, I think that really good leaders need to acknowledge where their gaps are and both surround themselves with people who have great knowledge, but where necessary also kind of role model a learning environment and, and spend time and actually roll up your sleeves and be a student. Right. I, I thought that was one of the many, many, many powerful messages that you gave at the, the Commonwealth Institute. Well, thank when you. You, yeah. you talked about the importance of asking for help. Yeah. And I think I totally agree with you. I talk about leadership differing by level. Yeah. So by yeah. definition, you cannot know everything exactly. you have to know when you step up. And I think it, it, you know, although it's counterintuitive, it actually builds your credibility versus yes. detracts from it. Right. It's amazing how much, first of all, people love to be needed and to, to help. And, uh, and to you be know, respected I think, for what they know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, I, that was kind of what I thought about in terms of the pivotal experiences, kind of the laterals, the core competency, and then kind of the project and the task force piece. So those are great. Good. What about, um, so speaking of how leadership differs yeah. by level, I, 
Ram Sharan in one of his many books. So I, I people accuse me of having crushes on Jim Collins <laughs> and Ram Sharan. <laughs> and, and in one of his many books, he, he says, people at any level can learn to think like a CEO. Yeah. And, and I really believe that's true, but most often we need help doing that. So, right. Yeah. Who are some of the people who helped you hone that ability as you were moving up? Well, you know, I think, you know, certainly I had a lot of great working relationships with people that I reported to. I mean, you know, we all have the bad experiences, but I have to say for the most part, I had very good working relationships with my bosses who gave me access, I think, to, you know, kind of their world, their purview, and kind of brought me in, and, and that was you know, a real benefit. I mean, probably the most obvious one was Paula Lair, who was the CEO during the 90s, asked me to be chief of staff. And, you know, oftentimes we focus so much on line experiences that, you know, we forget that sometimes those staff roles are actually the best windows to, you know, how a CEO thinks, how a senior manager thinks, because, you know, you get that perspective of really, you know, managing, if you will, the team engagement. And for me, that was extraordinary. And, you know, I I remember I was on, it was my first time on the senior team reporting to Paula Lair and very, very, you know, senior people, operations people around the table. And it was somewhat intimidating for me. You know, I was younger. I was the only woman on the team. And, and I started to default into the role of kind of being the go-to person, taking the notes, following up on stuff, and which I think happens sometimes, you know, in those chief of staff kind of positions. And one day Paul Allaire took me aside and he said, uh, you know, you're really disappointing me. And he said, I, I didn't ask you to be chief of staff to be a gopher. I asked you to be chief of staff because I wanted your perspective. I wanted your contribution. And, um, you know, I'm not getting it. And it was, wow, what a wake-up call and what a call to action it was for me mm. to put myself out there and actually take the risk of being a contributor and being able to play as an equal in that room. And it was incredibly valuable advice to me. And I think those are the kinds of things that, you know, when we talk about kind of mentorship and sponsorship, those are the real meaningful, you know, intersection points where a mentor or a sponsor is there and can intersect a moment where the learning is really appropriate, sometimes painful, and really get you to think about, you know, changing the way you're acting. So Right. So, so it's interesting to me because I'm contrasting that. This is off the list, but on topic. I'm contrasting your experience with one of the most eye-opening stories that I, I heard, the man who's the CEO of a system of hospitals here in Rhode Island. Yeah. When he was a very junior person, the CEO, so he was an, he was an accounting-type person in yeah. finance. The CEO took him under his wings, brought him to executive team meetings, Yep. And to the board. And he pre-briefed him. Here's yeah. the agenda. Why do you think we're talking about these topics? And then right. he debriefed him. And you were you were thrown in with none with none right. of that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's true. 
But, you know, I guess it's situational, but for me, I needed to be challenged to step up to the plate. And I think right. from Paul Allaire's perspective, he'd seen me tested. He'd seen me think. He'd seen me perform and deliver. So he wasn't worried that I didn't have a contribution to make. He was worried <laughs> that I would choose not to make it. And so I was a pretty senior person at the time, and um, I wasn't kind of being reached out from the the bottom of the corporation. I had really done my time and, you know, lots of different jobs. This was after running human resources, and it was time for me to step up. And, you know, it risky, a little scary, because... You know, I certainly didn't have a, a big support system in the room, but I think he kind of handled it right for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, you became the CEO, and I'm envisioning the first time you had to speak to yeah, the yeah. analysts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it might have been the first, I don't know, but yeah. was that the first time that you really had to speak that financial language? Um, you know, I'd had some experience, um, you know, I was running a division of the company before I became CEO, so, right. you know, I'd had some experience, but it was modest, and uh, certainly the big thing for me was is because of the financial situation we were in, you know, I had a quarterly meeting with all the bankers that required a report card on the company's progress uh, and a very detailed, sophisticated, complicated set of conditions that we were under. So I think this is one where, and I've, I've now gone through CEO successions with, you know, my boards, and I just went through it with Save the Children as well. So this is one where you really have to get serious about making sure you're prepared. You know, there's lots of opportunities that we have to interact with people on a con- consistent basis and build that credibility over time. But the reality is, as a CEO, you know, there are snapshot snapshot opportunities that you either are successful or you lose. And certainly, you know, with audiences like analysts or external, you know, whether it's customers or whatever, you don't get that opportunity to kind of, you know, in a, a somewhat relaxing way over time, build your story and credibility. So this is one where I think preparation, learning, knowing the content is huge. I mean, you have time to work on things like style and, you know, just your charisma or whatever, but I think you really have to go deep in terms of being prepared and not blowing, you know, significant constituencies' perceptions of you. And, you know, I think it's a process. I think, you know, you got to practice, you got to learn, you got to adapt. You know, there's no overnight approach to getting this down, but I think you have to take it very seriously. I think it's one of the most important things a CEO does is their communications internally and externally, and it needs to be really thoughtful. You have to be very confident about your messages. You know, you have to have a sense of that they're they're part of you. You know, it can't be, you can't be reading stuff all the time. It's a challenge, and I think it's one of the things that, you know, you have to really get your arms around it, and you can be helped. I mean, I think there's great, you know, coaches and people who can help you kind of on the style piece, but I think the homework piece about really knowing your content and coming across credible is probably the most important part. Right. I think the importance of a business-savvy message can overcome style deficits. I totally agree, and it did for me because, 
you know, that's not my stick. I'm not a professional speaker. But I think if you've got the content and you come across with confidence, people really do respect. You're listening to Lead to Soar. Our guest today is former Xerox CEO Anne Mulcahy, and she's being interviewed by a Career That Soars co-founder Susan Colantuno. you did with your finance person and or were there other people who helped you think because yeah it could it's so big it is so who helped you figure out because you were handling a mess i know i know you you know one of the things that i mean there could be a week where you have you're giving 10 presentations or speeches and you almost have to take it one at a time and you just have to think about it through the eyes of the constituency that you're speaking to, Mm. and you have to be prepared, whether it's a marketing initiative, whether it's a group of key customers. I mean, you know, I think it's one of those things that you have to take every event seriously. Mm. you got to get whoever the experts and the people are who got the content to kind of help you craft the right set of messages, and then you got to practice. you got to make sure that... You've got it down, and you can get on your feet and represent the company well. Yeah. So did you practice with people who who took on roles of analysts or irate customers? or You know, certainly for things like earnings, yes. we yeah. definitely did. I yeah. mean, that was – I wanted people okay. to blow as many holes through everything as possible. So yeah. we we did multiple sessions before every earnings where I needed the critics. I needed the people who kind of asked the tough questions, who found the holes in the story. Um, so that was very much a part of the process. This, uh, this is so valuable because I don't know many women who understand that it's a learning process. A lot of the yeah. women that we work with, yeah. they, they say, oh, I would never want to be CEO. Right. You know, it's too big a job. They don't understand that by the time you're in a position to be there, you can learn what you have to learn to succeed. Absolutely. I mean, one of my big, I'd love to talk about the fact that this is doable, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, you know, nobody comes into this job, you know, having all the tickets. As a matter of fact, we just promoted a woman to be the CEO of Save the Children, and as I was working with the, the search committee, this desire to keep contrasting her to the CEO who had been in place for 18 years. And I said, you know, that's just such the wrong place to be. Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, yeah, you're going to hire her on her potential. 
and her behavior and her, you know, value system and her knowledge, but you're not going to hire her because she's a great CEO day one. Right. Nobody right. is. Right. So they have to make sure that they've got the, the people in place that she can Absolutely. use for the kind of learning that you were able to, to yep. do to step up. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I loved what said at uh, the Commonwealth Institute about loving your job and what yeah. a great job it was. And lots of times women say, I love people, so I want to go into HR. And I think yeah. you really love people. Become right. a CEO. There's right, no exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I find actually uh, if you want to get cynical about people, go into HR sometimes. But, uh, no, I, I think um, – you know, enjoying what you do has so much to do with your ability to be successful. So, right. and, um, you know, uh, certainly having an appetite for the CEO job is hugely important. You know, and that's why I talk about, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be catching a plane to Chicago shortly to go out to BCG to talk um, to all of their women consultants. And, you know, we need women to be more ambitious about their expectations. <laughs> And, you know, to set much higher goals in terms of what's possible. And uh, I think we're far more risk-averse in terms of setting up that goal for the big job. So would that be among the next question? Anything else you'd tell women, a woman who aspires to make it? Well, yeah, I think this thing about risk-taking and for good reasons, I think, you know, women over time have become a little risk-averse because they've been under a magnifying glass and therefore mistakes are glaring failures. And and I, I get it that, you know, I think kind of adapted to a somewhat don't put yourself out there. And, and unfortunately, that's what's required to, you know, def, you know, really put yourself in a position to be considered for bigger jobs. And I think, you know, this need, Get more comfortable with risk-taking is something that I think is important about upward mobility for women. You know, and I talked about it at the Commonwealth Institute, but this thing about authenticity, too, kind of being comfortable in your own skin, not emulating the guy that you're working for, which most women are, (laughs) is, I think, also important. We're far more capable and competent when we're really comfortable with that inner core of who we are and and not trying to emulate something that doesn't feel as comfortable. I think the other thing is that, um, and this is also sometimes something I see with women, is is not taking work so seriously. My observation Mm -hmm. is guys sometimes are better at, you know, not letting work become this defining (laughs) part of who they are. And, um, I mean, work is a part of who, you know, it it is. We spend a lot of time at it. I mean, but not letting it be the thing that defines you. Not placing the all importance on if I'm not successful in my career, I'm a failure. I think taking a little bit of that pressure off and not taking yourself so seriously actually puts you in a better position to have a perspective about work that is better received. So, you know, as I as I thought about it, this thing about, and, and they kind of go together because if you're not so serious and so focused on succeeding in your career, then you take more risks too. You know, right. you're not, it's, you're not quite as a, afraid of a failure or a mistake. So, 
you know, there's life and there's work, and I think we need to make sure that we don't get confused about that. Right. It's funny, in her book, The Male Factors, Shanti Feldhan talks about how men talk about and think about their lives yeah. as a, a circle of work and a circle of life. Yeah. And women tend to think about life as a circle with a smaller circle in it that's work. Yeah. Which is, yeah, yeah. it makes it easy to confuse the two. Absolutely. Huh. Yeah. That's really interesting. Advice to D&I professionals. We work with a lot of them yeah, on yeah. internal women's initiatives. And oftentimes we're called in because the initiatives yeah. are losing relevance. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. what good advice do you have for them? Well, and I'm sure you know this, but I feel very strongly about it, that clarity about accountability with the line is, to me, really important. And sometimes we get confused when we put... D&I people in place in companies, and they tend to shoulder, I think, some of the accountability and the responsibility, and to me, that is a big mistake. Mm. The second thing is, is that I think one of the most important things that needs to happen is providing visibility to the facts, and, you know, not one of the things that I, I say all the time, and, you know, don't confuse good efforts with good results. Ah, uh, yes. And... And in, in when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we often spend the vast majority of our time applauding good efforts. The best mentorship program, oh, my God, training. I mean, this is a CEO talks about it, gives it visibility and awareness. They've got it in their bonus systems. Okay. <laughs> and that's interesting. But if it's not delivering better results, more women being promoted, more women in leadership, then I don't want to hear about it. And I think we have allowed diversity to be thought about differently than other business objectives where we would never tolerate the good efforts conversation versus good results. And, you know, that's one of the things that I think as we look at people who are in the diversity kind of roles, sometimes they enable the good effort conversation. And I think clarity about accountability with the line and results versus efforts is something that we have to do a better job of. Excellent. I totally agree. Well, so we're at the end of the half yeah. hour. Just about. Thank you. So oh, you're very welcome. Much. Well, best wishes with Thank the Thank you. All right, that's our Lead to Soar show for today. Our guest was Anne Mulcahy, a former CEO of Xerox. And to recap a few of the things she talked about, I just want to highlight some of her thoughts and recommendations. Anne recommended that people think about taking lateral roles and not always having to make necessarily a step up in your career path. Sometimes taking a lateral role, particularly in a domain that you don't have expertise yet can really help you round out your skills. So that's one thing she recommended. Anne also indicated that it's her philosophy that a real sign of leadership is when you acknowledge that you have gaps and you look to subject matter experts to help you learn and develop a working competency for yourself. And then with respect to diversity, and encourages leadership to not confuse good efforts with good results. Basically, Anne is suggesting that we as leaders 
should be thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the same way that we think about other business objectives and hold it to the same level of accountability. And then finally, Anne highlighted that we need more women to be ambitious about their expectations of themselves. And she said that we should set higher goals in terms of how we think about what's possible for ourselves. So all great words of wisdom. I really enjoyed hearing Anne and Susan's conversation. I hope you did too. And as always, if you've got thoughts or questions for us about the Lead to Soar podcast, you can reach out to Michelle Redfern or myself, Mel Butcher, directly inside a career that soars. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar. Thank you.